Good morning. All right, let's begin with prayer, please. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your love and your mercy, and we thank you that the message about you that's, that's going to lighten the world is going forward. We see evidences of that. We're so thankful for that. We pray that you will join us this morning and lighten our minds, transform our hearts, and continue to open avenues and bring workers to the field so that more and more people can come to know the truth of your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson four in the quarterly Rest in Christ, and the title is The Cost of Rest. And the second paragraph in Sunday's lesson reads, David saw a very beautiful woman taking a bath on her roof. His sinful impulses got the better of him that evening, and he slept with Bathsheba, the wife of a trusted army officer. Like all ancient kings, David had absolute power. As king, he didn't have to follow the rules that governed everyone else. And yet, the painful story of David's family following This story-changing moment reminds us of the fact that even as king, he was not above God's law. The lesson brings to light two types of laws here. Human law, kings don't have to abide by. He's above those rules that govern everyone else. And the the law of the land. And then he's not above God's law, though. Why isn't David above God's law? Because nobody is. Is it because God sent Nathan to confront him and let him know that God's keeping a record and God knows and God won't let David get away with it? No. Why did God send Nathan? Was it to enforce the law? Or was it because David was already suffering and didn't even know it? And that God sent Nathan to save David, to heal David, to bring David to repentance. What do you mean he was suffering and didn't know? So what happens in the heart, mind, and character of a person who commits murder and adultery? Do they become more tender and more Christ-like, or do their conscience become seared, their heart becomes hardened, their thinking becomes warped? David, at this point, is living in denial. He's pretending that he can get away with this. He is not appreciating the damage happening to his own soul. He's suffering. But he doesn't yet fully know, uh, appreciate the depth of the suffering. The lesson is quite correct in pointing out the difference between human law and God's law. These two law types are the root difference between God's government and Satan's government. The two types of law are the key to understanding the Bible. God's methods and principles and character and action, when we replace God's law with Satan's imposed human law lie, then we misunderstand the Scripture and we end up misrepresenting God. And we teach an entire series of false theology. The next paragraph says, Indeed, the law is there as a protection, a safeguard. And when even the king stepped outside of it, he faced terrible consequences. As soon as David transgressed the limits of God's law, he began to feel its effects in all aspects of his life. David thought that, that his passionate fling had gone unnoticed, yet Bathsheba was now pregnant and her husband far away. Was David's only problem that... Bathsheba got pregnant, that the affair became publicly known. And this is the source of his problem, causing his family to rebel and all these other things. Uh, If Bathsheba had not gotten pregnant and no one found out about the affair, his family didn't rebel because they didn't know, would then David had gotten away with it? No. No. What is the problem when someone commits adultery? 
Is it a legal problem? Or does the action itself do something to the adulterer? What does it do? It makes it a lot full of guilt and shame. It damages them in, the, in, in, in most person, yes. And so from my book, um, The God-Shaped Heart, from my book, The God-Shaped Heart, uh, starting page 241, I, I really unpack this whole thing with David. And, and let's, let's share some of that. Consider the lessons from the, from the life of King David. Early in his life, he experienced incredible victories over the lion and single combat against Goliath. Yet later, he suffered crushing defeat with Bathsheba and Uriah. How could David have such singular victories with the lion and Goliath only to fall so horribly short with Bathsheba? Was the defect in David's character that was revealed in his actions with Bathsheba not present with him when he faced Goliath? Or was the defect that we saw in his actions with Bathsheba in his heart when he faced Goliath. He did a lot of killing in between, as far as at war. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that was one of the reasons he couldn't build the temple. So that had, had to have had a hardening effect on his heart. So there's the suggestion that maybe his heart was hardened by all of his killing. What was the most significant difference between the situation that David faced with the lion and Goliath as compared to the situation he faced with Bathsheba. With the lion Goliath, it was to protect something else. With Bathsheba, it was unselfishness, his own desire, his lust. Interesting. It's an interesting observation. I could argue that perhaps, and I don't disagree that the uh, lion, now I don't know, was, was, was someone else around with the lion? I just think it was something, the sheep. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, David was king. What was the natural human response when you're faced with a lion or a giant of military war? Is the natural human response as, I've got this. I can handle it. Lord, you don't take a break, Lord. I'll handle this one on my own. Is that the natural response when you're faced with a lion or you're faced with a giant of war? Or is the natural human response of, I I can't handle this. This is bigger than me. I need help. What would David's heart naturally tend to do in the face of a threat of the giant and the lion? Would it naturally be to reach out to God, Lord, I need help? Or would it naturally be to, Lord, I don't need help? Okay. So in the situations in which he faced the lion, Goliath, and even the other military situations running from Saul, these naturally would cause him to doubt his own strength and realize he can't handle it. It's bigger than him. This is much of David's life. He finds himself in situations where his human strength is not sufficient, not only with Goliath the lion, but the bear, years of running from Saul, in combat with enemies after enemy. Each of these situations instinctively would result in David crying out for God. As the old saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. But when David saw Bathsheba bathing below his window, he was in a different place. David is now king. 
He was in a position of authority, a position of power, apparent control. He was safe. He was secure. He had wealth. He was beloved. He was popular. Perhaps David thought he could handle it now. I got this, Lord. In Patriarchs and Prophets, it says that David should have been at war with his soldiers, helping out. He had too much spare time, leisure time, time that was wasted when it should have been used for other purposes. And though, so his mind wandered. So, so the question I asked that we're still trying to answer was the defect that was manifest in David's character with Bathsheba in his heart when he faced Goliath and the bear and the lion and so forth. My position, if you can't figure it out yet, is yes, it was always there. It just wasn't manifest in those situations because those situations naturally caused him to doubt himself and to seek God. But with Bathsheba, with all the power of the state, all his popularity, all the security of his army, now this is not a threat to him. He can handle things. And this may be one of the reasons why God gave him instructions not to take a census. Had he taken a census, or when he did take a census, but God didn't want him to take a census because then he might be tempted to believe his strength was in his spearmen, infantrymen, bowmen, cavalry, rather than his true strength always being in God. But notice, this is when David's hold on God collapses. Selfishness took control of David's heart. And so the question, did the selfishness, which was manifested in David in the actions of taking Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, is that when selfishness suddenly first manifested in David's character? He wasn't selfish until that point. It just popped in there. Or was he selfishness always within David? But it wasn't until this time when the trials, the challenges, the tribulations seemed past that David was most vulnerable to its corrupting, insidious, dark, deep influences breaking out into the open. Yeah, but look at all the opportunities he had to kill Saul. His selfishness would have come out then. He could have killed Saul different times, but he chose not to. He could have, but why didn't he? Because Saul was chosen by God, and he didn't want to do that choice. And where, where was his position at that time? Was he king at that time? They're running from Saul. He was a fugitive. Would he have? Uh, would he have likely have been immediately embraced by all of Saul's generals? No. Was there a potential backlash threat to kill the king? But he was more concerned with God than his generals. Okay, and was he concerned with God when he was king and he saw Bathsheba? No. So when do you think the ultimate conversion of David, uh, when, when was the, David's ultimate conversion from selfishness? Was it before or after Bathsheba? It, it was then that David finally understood that he had a terminal condition of heart with which he was born and he could not change. He needed God to heal and transform him from within. His actions with Bathsheba was not the problem. Hear me. His actions with Bathsheba were not the problem. They were the manifestation, the outward symptomology of a core problem of selfishness in the heart. When David realizes his true condition, he doesn't seek a legal solution. He doesn't perform rituals. 
He doesn't, uh, he, he finally understands the reality of his situation and the, and the, and the real remedy that he needs, and he writes Psalms 51. And we're gonna unpack Psalms 51 now through the lens of design law. Verse by verse. Verse 1, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. From where do you think David wants his sin blotted out? From recorded history or his heart, mind, and character? In, in fact, if David wanted his sin blotted out from recorded history, he sure didn't get that prayer answered since we're reading about it in Scripture and all generations have. It got publicized. It didn't get blotted out. And, and the next verse tells you, verse 2, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He realizes something is wrong in his heart that needs purifying. Verse 3 and 4. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. He acknowledges his condition is terminal, that he cannot run from it. No matter where he goes, it's still there. He carries his sinful self with him. God diagnoses uh, diagnosis of his terminal condition is perfectly right and accurate. Yes? Why does he say, against you only have I sinned? Is the key for his sin? Because he certainly wrote Bathsheba. Uh, it, it is, uh, we're going to get to that in later in the lesson. It comes up later in the lesson. Okay, this, so I've got that, those notes on that question later in the lesson. So let me, let me just push pause on that, and we will answer that specifically. Why? Because it is against you and you only that I've sinned. Verse 5, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There's my point. This selfishness we see in David at Bathsheba, it didn't pop in there. It was there from the moment of his birth. But the circumstances of his life were such that it really didn't manifest. In fact, it could allow him to think he was righteous and virtuous because God used him to defeat Goliath. God used him to defeat the lion. God had him anointed to this. God put him in the position of power. All this could be used as evidence that he wasn't unrighteous. He was very righteous. But he still had sin in his heart that wasn't fully rooted out. It was always there until the aftermath. He realized this problem had been within him his entire life. He was born this way, infected with fear and selfishness. Verse 6, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. He understands that what God wants is to heal what is broken in his heart and mind. That's what God, God wants. You want to fix the brokenness in. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 7. He acknowledges that only God has the healing solution. Only the creator can recreate him back to God's original intent. Also notice he uses the symbolism or the symbolic language of the sanctuary service, which is evidence that the sanctuary service was just symbolic for the cleansing of heart and mind. And David understood that old system didn't save, but merely taught the deeper reality of cleansing the heart. David had insight into that. Verse 8 and 9. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He is asking to be renewed, to have the crushing guilt and shame taken out of his heart, to be glad again, to have fear and selfishness blotted out of his character so that he can one day see God face to face. I love this one. We all know this one. Verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Again, he acknowledges his need and desire for God to heal the heart, to change the motives, to to renew the mind, so that he operates on other-centered love. Verse 11. Cat, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He acknowledges God's presence is where he wants to be and only the Holy Spirit can fix the brokenness inside and enable him to stand in that presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a a willing spirit to sustain me. He asks for the joy of healing and the strength to stay compliant with God's treatment plan. It's not just give me a new heart. Give me a steadfast spirit. Give me the strength to stay on course, to stay with the plan, to comply with your directives. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. He acknowledged the responsibility and privilege to share God's remedy with others dying of the same condition. Verse 14. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. He specifically requests to have his heart healed from murder, from the willingness to kill another child of God. And no such freedom results in rejoicing and praise. He isn't asking for merely his guilt for the deed to be taken away, for some legal payment so that he doesn't have to suffer. He's asking to remove the motives in his heart that would cause him to kill somebody in the first place. He doesn't want to be a killer. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He acknowledges that his natural heart can't even praise God, but... All praise is an outflow of God's healing love transforming him. Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. He recognizes that the rituals have no power to heal. They're meaningless in the ability to transform the heart. God doesn't want them. He wants a transformation of the inner person. And he goes on to say in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He realizes God wants healing and restoration of his children back into harmony. His design law of love, his protocol for life. Verse 18, In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. He asks that God empower his helpers to be able to take a healing message to others. And then verse 19, then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He understands that if Israel rightly represents God, then the rituals will be effective teaching tools to help people understand the need to have their hearts and minds cleansed. All through Scripture, the message is the same. Humankind is infected with fear and selfishness, which is deviant from God's design for life. It's a terminal condition, dead in trespass and sin, and God is working through Christ to heal each person. The symptoms of sin are the manifestations of a sick heart. David had this sickness all along, and he wasn't truly converted until after it broke out into the open with his treatment with Bathsheba. Even though he was following God, he had those roots of selfishness where his heart wasn't truly transformed. Questions about that? Continuing on, this is still from the book. The question legal theologians cannot answer. If you are struggle to share this design law view with people who hold the penal legal model, David Bathsheba Uriah is a great story, and you can point them to this, and you can ask the question, when did sexual relations between David and Bathsheba no longer constitute sin for David? There's no right answer for the legal people. 
Every one of their answers are flawed. You'll get answers like this. Well, when he repented, and you just simply say, but isn't repentance turning away from one sinful behavior? Did David turn away from Bathsheba or did he turn toward her? Well then, hmm, they have a trouble with that. How about this? When they say, well, when God legally forgave or pardoned him, does that mean if a person today has a sin problem, for example, adultery or pornography, that once they ask God for forgiveness and and God forgives them, that they can continue on committing adultery or or visiting porn sites and it's no longer sin? Or would it be sin still? So uh, then how is it that David's behavior with Bathsheba is no longer sin if he's forgiven from God? Or they say, well, when he married her, when he married her, they, they jump on that one. Well, is God's law superseded by human culture and tradition? Is polygamy not a violation of God's law even in local, when local customs accept it? If today a Christian moved to a country where polygamy is legal, and there are countries like that in the world, would it be acceptable to have more than one wife in that country? Or would it still be a violation of God's law? Still a violation. Oh, well, well, well. You see, the penal legal people cannot answer this question. Sinful humanity and level four and below moral developmental thinking, which is penal legal theology and below, look on the outward appearance, the behavior, the deeds. God looks on the heart. It's all about heart motive, folks. It's always about the motive. The issue is not primarily the behavior of David, but the motive that led to the behavior. The relationship between David and Bathsheba was sinful when it was motivated by selfishness in the heart. It was selfishness that called David to commit adultery. It was selfishness that called David to murder Uriah. Uh, And all of this was sinful. However, after David was confronted by Nathan, after he died to self, was reborn with a new heart and right spirit, where he genuinely loved others more than self, David was no longer seeking to exploit Bathsheba for his own pleasure, but instead he had a godly desire to heal and the damage he's inflicted upon her, and restore her in station and reputation and character to take away all the harm that he caused her. By the adultery and the murder of her husband, David had taken her good name in the community. He had taken her reputation. He had taken her station, her livelihood. Women could not own property, could not own a home. He took her home from her. Uh, She would likely have ended up homeless and perhaps even a prostitute had David turned his back on her. David had also taken away the one who loved her and cherished her and who would adore her and would pour love into her life as God designed. He took that from her. The only way in that society that David could restore to her what he had taken was to marry her and to genuinely love her. It's interesting they never tell Bathsheba's side in this. Exactly because Bathsheba was not in the position that David was in. We'll come to the why he said against me only. Bathsheba was not in the position that David was in. Well, yeah, but she still had feelings. I mean, how could she marry and love somebody that had her first husband murdered? It's an interesting question. I could uh, expound on that, but I don't want to get off our, our flow here. <laughs> this is real repentance. It's not merely turning away from behavior but turning away from the selfishness in the heart that led to the behavior in the first place. The penal theologians, based on level four thinking, almost always focus on deeds and would have injured, add injury to injury, because they would have advised David to spurn her and turn away from her. And she would have been more damaged 
by that so-called action of turning away from sin than what happened in this case. Those at level four thinking also misunderstand the death of the child. They will almost always use this example of God punishing sin. As God is the source of death, that some, some might suggest. Not so. We must remember Israel at that time was functioning as a role of God's actors on stage, uh, acting out and displaying the plan of salvation. David, as king, was center stage in this play. You can get uh, insights from both Old Testament and New, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, that we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. They're watching what's happening. David and king, center stage, eyes of the world have been viewing this for millennia since then. And what do we learn? The child that failed to survive... He had some congenital, he didn't die instantly. There was something wrong and he died slowly over a period of hours or days. We don't know what it was, congenital heart defect, something. But there was something wrong with the child at birth that caused its death. And God did not miraculously miraculously intervene to heal the physiological situation. The child died. And that child was the child that was a product of selfishness. That child came about because of selfish, sinful behavior. This was an exact object lesson. Selfishness does not bring life. Selfishness violates the law of life, the law of love, and it results in death. However, note, when love rules in the heart, when David's converted, when he has love in his heart, then life, health, and wisdom occur, and David and Bathsheba had a child of wisdom, Solomon. Because love now rules in the heart, and love leads to wisdom. So the object lessons are powerful. Monday's lesson asked why Nathan told the story before uh, confronting his sin. It was a communication style to help bring conviction to get past David's own biases and defenses. So... Why does David, now this is a question Linda asked, why, and, and from the, why does David say his sin was against God? Because, bottom line? Well, she says all sins against God, and that's true, but in this particular case, it's more than that. David betrayed God. That's why. God had been faithful to David. God had delivered David from Saul. God had given David victory over Goliath. God had delivered David from the lion and the bear. God had protected David in multiple combat operations. God uh, had chosen David to be king and given David the country and authority and power and wealth and health and fame and intelligence. God had blessed David. They were partners. And David was to represent God. And David betrayed his friend after all his friend had done for him. And further, had David not sinned against God first by betraying the trust, he would have never had adultery with Bathsheba. He was only able to have adultery with Bathsheba because he first betrays his trust with God. That comes first. So that's that's why. Tuesday's lesson, the title is Forgiven and Forgotten? Question mark. <laughs> First paragraph says, after David had unwittingly pronounced judgment on himself, Nathan confronted him with the enormity of his sin. David's heart was broken, and he confessed his sin. Immediately, Nathan assured him that the Lord has, uh, Lord also has put away your sin, and that he and he was forgiven. 
There was no waiting period for God's forgiveness. David didn't have to prove that he was really sincere before forgiveness was extended. When does God extend forgiveness? Before or after repentance? Continuously. Before or after repentance? If it's continuous, then it's before. It's always there. That's right. Uh, does, Does God need Jesus in order to extend forgiveness or to forgive us from his heart? If Jesus did not die, would God have been unforgiving or have an unforgiving attitude? Would he refuse to forgive us because he doesn't have the blood to pay for the sin? I'd love to forgive you, folks. Just can't do it. There's no blood here in my registry to account for the sin and pay the penalty, so I can't forgive you. Sorry, folks. Love to. Love you. Love you. Can't forgive you. Is that how it works? Does Jesus' death do something to God to get God to forgive us? Do you understand? I ask these questions because that's the common view. It is commonly taught in Christianity that Jesus had to pay the price so God could forgive us. It's a fraud. It's a lie. It's based on human law. God forgives all. Another way to ask, which came first, God's forgiveness or Jesus' death? If God forgives us without Jesus' death on the cross for our sins then why did Jesus have to die for our salvation? And let me be clear. I want to say this clearly because I get accused all the time, all the time, fraudulently. Jesus' death as our Savior, as our substitute, was an absolute requirement for human salvation from sin. We could not be saved without the substitutionary death of Jesus in our behalf. Can I say that any more clearly? But I'm still accused all the time of of denying that Jesus died as our substitutionary Savior. But saying that doesn't mean that he died a legal payment. He didn't have to die a legal payment. He had to die to remedy the sin problem. Thus, we believe in substitution, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. There it is, substitution. So that, here's the reason, we may become the righteousness of God. He died as our substitute to make us righteous, not to declare us righteous even though we're not. To actually take, as David prayed, the sin out of the heart and renew a right spirit within us. Salvation, and so Jesus is our substitute. Why did Jesus have to die if God forgives? Anyway, because salvation is not a legal issue. Jesus' death was not needed for forensic or legal reasons uh, because we do not have a legal problem. Sin is a problem with our state of being. Namely, we have hearts that operate on fear and selfishness. We're sinful in character. And this is out of harmony with how God's character operates and therefore God's entire universe, which is built upon the law of love. And so God needs to fix in us. He needs to write his law in our hearts and minds. He needs to remove from us the principles that are the death-causing principles and put in us the life-causing principles. And Christ became human to achieve that outcome, to restore in the species humanity as the second Adam the life-causing principles of love. That's what he came to do as our substitute. God forgives all. 
All are forgiven by God, yet not all accept God's forgiveness. The kindness of God does not lead all to repentance. All who are led to repentance are led to repentance by the kindness of God, but his kindness did not lead all to repentance. On the cross, Jesus showed infinite love and infinite kindness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They were forgiven by God and shown kindness. But not all of them were led to repentance. They didn't repent. Their hearts did not remain, did not become changed. Thus, even though they were forgiven by God, they remained in a state of unforgiveness. It did not enter their heart to change them. What about this idea of forgetting? Does forgiveness mean forgetting? Well, Isaiah 43.25 says, I, even I am him who blots out your transgressions for my own sake for, and remembers your sin no more. Hebrews 8.12, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. What is this talking about? Is this memory erasure? We all get heavenly Alzheimer's? Is that what's going on here? When we were talking about David and Bathsheba just now, did the angels look, your guardian angel look, and my guardian angel said, what are they talking about? Uh, we have no record of that in heaven at all. They're unaware or think about in the new heaven and the new earth. I love this, this illustration. Will you know your loved ones in heaven? Will you know your, your husband, your wife, your daughters, your, your grandparents? Will you know your loved ones in heaven? So David, Bathsheba, Uriah are all meeting, and here comes Solomon and says, Hey, Mom. Uriah looks over and goes, I did not realize I left you with child. Well, actually, this is David's son. Will they know or not know? This idea that they don't know is ridiculous. It is contrary to reality. It is silliness. And it's based on fear. People are afraid. They teach us because they have the wrong law model, unless they have the wrong God that has to hold you accountable, and they have the wrong belief about other people. No one could love me if they knew my sin. No one could love me if they knew I committed adultery. No one could love me if they knew I murdered one of my soldiers. No one could love me. We have to erase. No one can know. I, so we go to heaven. We all live fraudulently. We all live pretend lives. We're not, there's, it's, not a, it's not a heaven of truth. It's a heaven of masquerade. Dependent on amnesia. One person one day discovers the heavenly library and a Bible. All were burned but one. And they found one. And they look in the Bible. And oh no, the truth is, uh, is about to go. And the whole thing collapses. Because we're all dependent on not having any memory. Do you see how silly it is? It's actually just the opposite. It is just the opposite. Not only will we know, we will know every detail of everything that we ever want to know. I'm not saying you'll be forced to know everything. You might not care about some individual that you've never met and really care to investigate. But anybody you want to know about, it's all open. Everything is known. There is nothing hidden. And it doesn't threaten us. Why? For the purpose. And it doesn't threaten us. Why? But we have, well, we have new hearts. But how reality works, design law. It, it, under the imposed law, it's all judicial. And if people know, you have to be punished. And, and, and what I just went through, but under design law, deeds are manifestations of symptoms. And we look back on that in the same way we look back on any sickness. When you had fever, when you had cough, when you had phlegm, when you had diarrhea, when you had vomiting, you look back on that sickness today, you don't have to go, I've never been sick in my life. I've never had vomiting once. 
You don't have to deny that. You go, yeah, it was terrible. I had leukemia. They put me on chemo. Oh, it was awful. But praise God, the cancer is in remission. Exactly. I think Uriah will praise God for the transformation of David's character. Exactly. Exactly correct. This is what happened. So if you had a child that had leukemia and they went through all this uh, chemo and during the time of chemo, you had to have it foremost on your mind because they had to have special precautions. They couldn't be exposed to things that your regular kids, they couldn't go out and do regular activities. They could get bruised. They could bleed They because they don't have blood. They don't have platelets. They, uh, you have to take all kinds of precautions with them. You have to remember constantly their leukemia. But now the leukemia is in remission, completely gone, never to return. Can you forget the leukemia? You don't have to think about it in the day-to-day operation. You don't have to take special precautions anymore. They have freedom to live their life to the fullest again. Does that mean you ever forget, though, the doctor who, or the neighbor who donated bone marrow that saved your child? Do you ever forget that person? Never forget them. You're always thankful. And this is what Jesus said about the woman, Mary Magdalene, who anointed his feet. Those who are forgiven much, love much. It's because we remember how sick we were. And we contrast that to how well we are and the joys of heaven and what Christ has done for us. We remember, and it gives us great joy and appreciation and love in our hearts. To take away the memory takes away the joy, takes away the love, takes away the appreciation. And it also takes away the security because we're vulnerable to it happening all again. On the flip side of that point, when it says in Revelation 14, uh, verse 9, the third angel, uh, he will be tormented, burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will ascend, will rise forever and ever. A lot of people take that to mean they're going to be tortured forever and ever, but the smoke is also a reference to prayer or memory of something. The memory of the bad that happened here will ascend forever. We'll always remember that so that it won't be reproduced. Smoke is what's left after things are burned. So they aren't suffering for alternative, but the memory of their rejection, the memory of the torment that sin caused them, in the presence of infinite love and truth, will never be forgotten. Yes, Sophia. Isn't there a quote in Ellen White that says, lest we forget the past, we're doomed to repeat it? Yes. Like mm-hmm. Yes. That's, yes. That, that came to mind. Yes. Uh, well, here's another one. You mentioned her. Here's another quote. This is out of um, Maranatha, page 346. Every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversy has been made plain. The results of rebellion, the fruits of setting aside the divine statues, have been laid open to view to the view of all created intelligences. The working out of Satan's rule in contrast to the government of God has been presented to the whole universe. Satan's own works have condemned, condemned him. God's wisdom, God's, his justice, and his goodness stand fully vindicated. It is seen that all his dealings in the great controversy have been conducted with respect to the eternal good of his people and the good of all the worlds that he has created. The history of sin will stand to all eternity as a witness that with the existence of God's laws bound up the happiness of all the beings he has created. We will never forget. The history stands. What Christ accomplished stands. It's, it's just powerful stuff. Wednesday's lesson in the middle reads, and I'm scroll. I'm, I'm, I'm moving. Let us, we're we're going to hit Thursday, guys. We're going to hit Thursday pretty soon. Okay? 
the middle of the lesson, we read Adam and Eve sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God's presence. And then and it asks, why do you think David's request, even after his sin, is so different? In other words, search, uh, you create me a clean heart, O God. So they're saying Adam, Adam and Eve hid after sin. David asks for a clean heart. Well, David's response was not different than Adam and Eve's. It wasn't different at all. They ran and hid because they were afraid and they covered themselves with fig leaves and tried to make excuses. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. David, when Bathsheba told him she was pregnant, ran and hid and tried to cover his sin with more sin, trickery, and uh, uh, to get Uriah to sleep with her and then murder. But God came to Adam, gently bringing Adam to realize God wasn't his enemy and Adam had a problem now and Adam repented and looked to God to provide a savior. And God sent Nathan to David with a parable, which was designed to bring David to repentance, which it did, so that God could change his heart and David could have confidence in the coming Savior. There was no difference here. It's, kind of, it's an artificial construct to suggest there was. Our natural selves always react to sin with fear, fear of punishment, fear of death, fear of reprisal, fear of guilt, uh, shame, fear of rejection, and always seeks to cover up ourselves and make excuses and blame others. That's our unconverted self. It's only God's grace, the kindness of God, leads us to surrender and trust him. We see that he's not against us, he's for us. And it's only the design law healing model, the truth of God's character that we see in Christ, that can bring us that direction. If we go with the penal legal model, understand, the entire penal legal model theology is designed to continue to cover over your sin rather than transform and free you from it. You just get better coverings. You get the robe of righteousness that covers your sin and you're declared righteous even though you're not, but you don't get freed from it. This is the corruption because you can't trust God and you will perpetually have an intercessor to hide you from God and flee to his blood to God because God will kill you if he sees it. It's only coming to the truth about God and his design laws that lead us to really open the heart and say, search me and see the wicked way in me, O God, creating me a clean heart. And then Thursday. Look at the difference between the way David reacted to Saul, his predecessor. Yes. When he was confronted, he, he ended up always making excuses and saying, well, I did do what I was told to do. Well, then why do I hear these sheep? Well, we saved the sheep because we wanted to sacrifice them to you, etc. So each time, I think it was two or three times, Saul was confronted by a partial obedience. He didn't do what David did. He didn't say, I'm right, you're right, I'm wrong. He said, well, you know, I really did do the right thing. And no, it wasn't me. It was the men who wanted to do this. And so I, you know, was afraid of them. I went ahead and did what they wanted to do. All this kind of thing, the difference between the reaction of being confronted is uh, clearly seen between David and, and Saul. And when God says he's a man, David is a man after my own heart, that's what he's talking about. Yeah. When confronted, not that they're better than each other, but when confronted, Saul had a repentant heart. That's right. All right, Thursday's lesson, first paragraph. Probably the most natural thing for... A- for us to do after working through an embarrassing failure and experiencing forgiveness is to try to forget that the event ever happened. Memories of failure, failure can be painful. What happens if we forget our past mistakes, our past stumblings, our past sins? Multiple philosophers, too many to name as you look it up on the internet, have expressed this idea in various ways, something like this. Those who don't know history or forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Is this true? Why is it true? 
It's only true because of design law. God's design law being violated, causing the law of sin and death that infects human hearts. That's why this is true. Understand, it is not true that doing an experiment with certain chemicals in a lab, that if you lose your notes and forget the combination of steps, that you are doomed to repeat the same experiment and get it right again in the future. It's something new that you've never done before. You may forget what you did and never be able to reproduce the outcome. It is not true that if you uh, forget a specific route on a long journey cross-country, that if you travel that route, again, you're doomed to take the exact same route. You may really take different roads to get there. This is not true that if you forget things, you're doomed to repeat the same things. This is true about the nature of man. That's what it's talking about. The law of God, deviations from his law, and how reality works. If we forget the principles of God, of truth, love, liberty, then in every case, over time, intolerances arise, abuses occur, societies divide, elites arise to control assets and governments. Uh, religion uh, uh, will begin to exploit the masses, and the masses are taken advantage of every single time. This is what Satan's methods do every time. History is clear. Satan's form of government is rulers who rise up to claim power in order to dominate and exploit and take from the masses to maintain their position of elitism. God's kingdom is just the opposite, where the ruler sacrifices himself all the way to the cross in order to lift up the masses. Satan's form of government is opposed to God's. Satan said he would take his throne and would rise up. Jesus did not think equality with God was something to grasp, but humbled himself down to serve. When Satan took himself to the, uh, Jesus to the mountain to tempt him, he said, all the kingdoms of the world are mine to give to you. And Jesus himself validated that his kingdom is not of this world. All the kingdoms of earth operate on Satan's principles. Power over, imposed laws, threats of punishment, exploiting the masses. That's how all the kingdoms of the world work. Satan's kingdom... You see this in history. The pharaohs of Egypt, the shoguns of Japan, the emperors of China, the emperors of Rome, the kings and queen and popes of the, of the European states. There have always been in every culture three primary exploiting powers that exploit the people. The government itself, the religious leaders, the shaman or the, or the priests and popes and prelates of whatever religion, and the aristocracies, the big money, big business, shipping magnets, the, the people who own the land, these three have always exploited the people. And these are Satan's principles. But something happened eventually in human history that formed a government that was designed purposely to resist these powers. What happened that led to the forming of a government that was designed to resist these powers? The Reformation, putting the Bible in the hands of the people. And when the Bible went in the hands of the people, they began to rebel first against religious authority and power. We don't believe because a pope said it extra cathedra. We don't accept it because a priest said it. We don't take it from a council at Trent. We are the priesthood of believers. We study and believe and think and exercise the authority God has given us within to come to our own conclusions. We resist the authoritarian power of the church. This led to the development of understanding that we as individuals in the image of God have inalienable rights given to us by our Creator. 
And they led to the formation of a government that would resist all the powers. The powers of the church, the powers of the state, the powers of the aristocracy, the big businesses and corporations, in order to give power to the people, not to give us inalienable rights of individuality, liberty, freedom, justice for all. It wasn't to give us those rights. It was to restrain the powers from taking and encroaching on those rights. This is the first government in history to be based on this, and it comes right out of the Protestant principles, right out of the Enlightenment. But today we find, just as the Bible predicts, because Satan hates these principles, it is contrary. He does not want the atmosphere of freedom because love only grows in an atmosphere of freedom. Individual development only happens in the atmosphere of freedom. Your capacity to think and to grow and to recover the image of God within only happens in an atmosphere of freedom. When your liberties are taken away, your capacity for growth and development are compromised. Your capacity for love are compromised. Satan hates uh, an environment of liberty. He, He hates it. And so today we find the United States is about to do, just as the Bible predicts, completely reject these principles and practice all the same exploitive powers of the first beast before it. The opponents of liberty and justice for all, equality under the law, uh, want to strip away our inalienable rights. And they'll do this by claiming some other form of justice, like racial justice, gender justice, some form of justice. Housing justice. Housing justice. They will claim we have to do right by people. And then that, that will be their, their declared statement. But then they will implement methods that actually do injustice, that wrong people, that hurt people, that divide people, that take away liberty and freedom. They will be contrary to the methods of God. And this is why these systems that are active in our country today are specifically opposed to the Protestant Reformation. They're specifically opposed to the principles of hard work, the principles of of liberty and freedom. They want to restrict free speech, free assembly, free movement, free religion, freedom of conscience. And they want to destroy people's capacity to reason and think, and they want people to accept things based on claims and declarations, the person in authority, the person sitting with the biggest media um, pulpit. That, believe because the CDC said, or Dr. So-and-so said, or President So-and-so said, or this person, believe because the Pope said, the Pope spoke, who are you to question? The science says, without actually understanding science at all. And people are being conditioned just to accept because somebody in authority said it. Discerning people can see evidence There's a declaration, there's a system going on, a big fraud, a lie being perpetrated upon the American people that the United States is racist, white privilege, institutional racism. If you're an evidence-based thinker, just think through this with me. Can Would a society that has 12 to 13% of its population black, think this through, 12 to 13% black, Elect a black president and a black vice president if it was actually anti-black, white supremacist, and racist. They don't have the votes to elect a black president and a black vice president. They only have 12 to 13% of the population. It couldn't happen. The fact that that happens is as evidence that, in fact, this nation is not, not racist. That doesn't mean there aren't racist individuals. I'm not saying that. But as the institutions, as the country functions, it's not racist. It's a lie. 
And anybody with discerning can see past the claims and the declarations to see that, in fact, functionally, that, that doesn't work. It, does not, it, doesn't, it can't operate that way. The United States is a unique nation in all history. All other nations are based on culture and race. The United States is based on principles of liberty and freedom for all. Again, emigrate to any country other than the United States in this world, Mexico, Guatemala, China, Russia, Britain, anywhere you want to go and try to become a citizen first off and then see if you are ever considered an part a, a, you might have citizen rights, but are you ever considered a Russian? Are you ever considered a Mexican? Are you ever considered a, 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 a Brit? You will never be. You will always be the foreigner who got citizen rights, but you're still the foreigner. In America, when you come here and become naturalized, you're considered an American. You're an American, not by race, not by culture, by principles, principles of truth, justice, liberty for all. And so this, this, this narrative is contrary to the, the Protestant principles of the Reformation, and it is contrary to reality. And people's minds are being damaged by not being able to discern and think through this thing. And so what happens, in order to get people to think through, in order to people to believe this fraud that's being perpetrated upon the populace, they have to, this is what we're talking about in the lesson, deny history. They have to deny history. They have to relabel the land as the land of the free to the land of the enslaver. They have to relabel communism as socialism. They have to relabel college and sport team names. They have to tear down statues of American heroes. They have to re remove names of the founders from the schools and various districts in our society. They have to reframe the flag as a symbol from a symbol of liberty and justice for all, uh, one nation under God, to a symbol of abuse and enslavement. They have to change the date of the founding of the United States of America, not from 1776, but to 1619 when slaves came to this country. Understand the denial of object reality here. When slaves came to this country in 1619, the United States of America did not exist. They came here as property of colonies and the colonial powers of Europe. And in fact, the United States rebelled against and threw off those powers to establish a land of liberty. But that has to be denied. We can't remember that. We must forget that so we can actually claim that this land of liberty is a land of enslavement. It's corrupt. It's fraudulent. It's lies. It destroys thinking. It gets people to accept claims and declarations, to take a, a data point, slaves first came in 1619, and twist that into, therefore America, the United States, is this. It's not. And then we must change the language. Mother can no longer be mother. It must be your birthing person. He's not joking. This is a thing. I have patients who work in industry, and they've been educated by their... Um, HR departments that they aren't to ask their coworkers, how's your wife doing? How's your husband doing? Um, that could be offensive to some. You can only ask how their partner is doing. Husband and wife is language we can't use anymore. You can't use the language of fathers and mothers. You can't use the language of males and females. You must use the proper pronouns because someone will get offended. You understand the assault on the minds of people to deny reality and, God, and deny God's design for human life and health. We must be lovers of truth. We must be thinkers, grow up in the full stature of Jesus Christ who can reason through 
and have developed by practice the ability to discern right from wrong. We have to exercise those faculties for them to get stronger. Because if you don't use it, you that's your thinking and discerning abilities as well. And our, and our society is under a, a, a serious and gross assault on the minds of people that are specifically contrary to the principles of the Reformation and God's principles in Scripture. And I want you guys to be able to see that and lovingly but, but uh, firmly confront the lies with truth when the situation is appropriate for you to do so. Let's close our prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for your truth. And we live in, in perilous but yet exciting times because we can see that your return is just over the horizon. We know that uh, the circumstances are forming to bring every person to a decision point. Will they embrace and practice your methods of truth, love, and liberty? Or will they embrace and practice the methods of lies, coercion, and intimidation? Lord, we, we know that, uh, that it is only you and your methods that, that will result in reconciliation with you and eternal life. And so we ask that you will empower us, enlighten us, create opportunities for us to share this message to free so many uh, good-hearted people who are being confused by the lies out there that they may be brought into your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.